Hello, this is Minute 93 of As If, the podcast about Clueless, where we talk about Clueless minute by minute. I am Darren, your host, and with me today is Amy Pascal. Hello, Darren. Hello. Former host of a number of episodes, uh, minutes 43 to 47, and uh, minutes 73 to 77. There's like a, yes. a half hour gap between those. And now here on minute 93. Like it. So it's like 20 minutes since you started <laughs> as a, a second host. So if people if people miss me, like I give them just enough time to miss me and then they can come <laughs> back. Like and then you know they get they get cozy and they spend some time with me and then they're they're ready for another break. Um and today's minute starts with uh the bouquet toss or is it, has the bouquet just been tossed? I can't remember. I think it's like uh midair or it is midair. Yeah. yeah to, it yeah. is definitely just, midair. Just as they start grabbing for it and we start to get a battle. Um, and I'll, I'll say this. If this film was done today, uh, Christian would have been in there in the bouquet toss. He would have been fighting uh, for it, you know. That That's a really, really excellent point that they have. <laughs> that I mean, I like that they have... Oh, I'm going to forget her name. Julie Brown's character, the coach. Miss um, Kroger. Yes, Miss Kroger. Yeah. I like they have her in there in yeah. a tuxedo, in a white tuxedo. So I thought that was kind of a nice way to nod to uh, her sexual preference, uh, which I know is referred to earlier in the movie. But you're yeah. right, Christian would be in there and he would be looking absolutely spectacular. And we finish the minute with Twink Kaplan's associate producer credit. Uh, bright yellow with uh, green text. Um, the font that's being used, um, I think is called Adlib. Um, it's the same font, and I don't know if anyone has ever noticed this, that is on the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, so if you look at their Rotten Tomatoes, it's the oh, same font. Oh, that's a really, I never noticed see? that. And I only know that because I did the artwork for this, and so I was trying to track down <laughs> exactly what the typeface is, and everyone was basically like, oh, it's the Rotten Tomatoes typeface. I was like, oh, oh there you go. Didn't even notice. Um, so, yeah. So, let's start with the bouquet toss. Because, yeah, like we say, if this was done today, and I hate people trying to modernise this film, so I'll try and avoid this too much. But, yeah, Christian should have been in there. Um, like, the last time we saw Christian was actually in a minute that I did where he's just in an art gallery with Cher. And kind of like, that's, you know, that's it. That's the last time we see him. After he's rescued Ty, the last, like, as he walks off screen with Ty... Uh, where she says, uh, what's R&R? And he, he starts saying, you know, I can't remember what his response is, but that's the last time you see him as he rescues Ty. There's a lot of talk about Christian after that minute, but that was like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago from yeah. here. And no, that was the last time you saw Christian. Because because he is mentioned so much. And yeah, they talk about yeah, the Ty. rescue and Ty's like, oh, I'm going to go out. And, and even um, Cher is like, oh, you should go, you know, you should thank Christian by going and buy something. And she's like, oh, I'm busy all week. And so, yeah, they talk about Christian a lot after that point. You see him once in this little kind of voiceover thing that Cher does like about 10 minutes after that. But mm-hmm. no. No Christian. And I don't think he's even in any of the wedding scenes from last week. I I don't think he's even at this wedding. To which Hmm. I think I had said in an earlier minute, I think that's probably because he's back with his, whoever his other parent is. Because obviously he wasn't there for the first semester. He was there for just after Christmas up to spring break. And then he's not here for this, which I assume is taking place after graduation. So this is just before the start of the summer. So I'm assuming he's back in Chicago with whichever parent... I don't remember the full explanation Cher gave. So whichever parent he's not with when he's not in Los Angeles, you know, he's that's where he is. I think that's that's how I take it. You know, I like that. I like that storyline. I it would have been nice if they had a quick throwaway um, line in there, but it, it would have at least made sense because he's such a big deal for so long. Like, and yeah, it's Christian, and then she's gonna lose her virginity to him and like seduce him and all of this <laughs> other stuff. But yeah, it's kind of surprising. He walks in like as the most important character for almost exactly like 15 minutes, and then by the end of those 15 minutes, his sexuality has been found out, 
and he rescues Ty, and then like three minutes later, he's gone from the film. It's like it's super efficient, though. Like that is, yeah. if you think about the storyline with um, you know the newlyweds here, Mister and Missus Hall. You know, at the start of the film, shares wants to get them together because she got a bad grade in like minute eight. So yeah. by the time you get to about minute eighteen, she's done that. Like it's it's really really fast in terms of dealing with that, and then you, as soon as that finishes, you're into Ty is here, and then the film becomes about Ty, and then ten minutes later it becomes about Ty and Elton, and then they're at the party, and then you know Elton. <laughs> it's it, it's almost you know. like a very '90s teenage episodic TV show. You know, yes. if you think about yeah. it, like it's, uh, it's almost, I never thought about this until you mentioned that, but <laughs> I kind of feel like it's a, like, a, like saved by the bell ish because yeah. it is, yeah. you know, there's a vague through line throughout it. And it's like the year of high school that they're in for this particular year and her figuring out her, but it's not even that she's figuring out her relationships or that she wants to have an amazing year. Like it is just all of these little segmented pieces and things kind of go back to it. And it really does feel like, like saved by the bell. It's like this yeah. episode is about getting this couple together. This episode is about, <laughs> you know, fixing tie. This episode yeah. is about like getting Christian and, you know, losing her virginity to him, you know, like we like, like, 30 minute sitcom sort of thing, which is not surprising that it became a 30 minute sitcom because <laughs> it's kind of perfect for that format, like versus a like Beverly Hills 90210 drama where they yeah. actually have a long like standing through line throughout it. And the funny thing is, of course, is that Cher is saving herself for Luke Perry, but Christian looks like Jason Priestley. So Yeah, you're right. He does look like Jason Priestley. He actually says that. he When, he hold, when, he's, when he's buying the jacket, he says to um, Cher, he says... Is it Jason Priestley or is it James Dean? And that's the that's the options he gives him. So he himself knows that with that that quiff, he looks a little bit like Jason Priestley. Yeah. You know, but it's weird that they mention both Jason Priestley and Luke Perry in this film. Uh, you know, because they no one ever says and no one ever says Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero either. This is the no. thing. No one in this film ever mentions that as a piece of pop culture. And yet they say the names of the two lead actors from it. So it's a bit curious, but yeah, so... Yeah, that's a really good point because, I mean, as much as there's a lot of things in here that date the movie, there's not a lot of pop culture that dates the movie. Um, no. in In a very specific, like you said, like TV shows, you know, yeah. there's a lot of music that dates it if you were watching it from an outsider. But, um, like, even with the Mighty Mighty Boston's playing, it's not like everyone is totally rallying about this amazing Mighty Mighty Boston concert and that's going to be this huge part of it, you know? Like, you yeah. don't get that at all. Cher says, you know, she's having a Twin Peaks moment when the stuff with Elton starts happening. But even then, in like 1995 or 94 when the film was being done, Twin Peaks was still like a kind of old phenomenon. Like, it wasn't like this oh, is yeah. a brand new reference. And that you'll find that with a lot of the stuff in this film is like even if they make references that are relatively contemporary they're still a few years out i mean yeah. you know that's that's simply because of how long it takes for scripts to get turned into films um without being punched up with you know like a writer's room of comedy writers throwing in a bunch of kind of like pop culture stuff um you know so i, I yeah it's interesting that they don't mention con like many contemporary like tv shows or anything like that which is kind of like a trademark of some of them like the kind of the comedies now is yeah. they will mention it. Or they don't do this thing, which um, I don't know where to trace it back to, but I think it comes from Bring It On, which is the guy who has the tastes of the director. Like, the character who is super cool, but only because their musical tastes reflect the tastes of the 40-year-old director who's directing it. Which, you know, um, Jesse Bradford in Bring It On, he's, like, a, a huge fan of, like, you know, punk bands from the 70s. Which literally no kid in the year 2000 who was aged like 16, which I think is around the age he's meant to be, would be a fan of punk bands from like 1978. It's just like, that why? It's because, obviously it's because Peyton Reed was a fan. And even on the commentary himself, he admits everything that Jesse Bradfield's character likes <laughs> is just stuff that he likes, basically. And he just put it in the film for that reason. So, but... There's not that in this film. I mean, that also happens in a lot of the kind of, like, YA adaptations. Like, yeah. Like, you'll have, like, the Manic Pixie Girl is into, 
I mean, obviously, Natalie Portman is the worst example of that. Like, is yeah. into the shins, and you know, and in that particular case, she's playing the shins to the guy who's directing the film, who told her to tell him. So that's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. next level. Where Zach Braff is like, yeah, I like the shins. So let's have a cute girl tell me how great the shins are. And there's no, there's none of that in Clueless. Like there is, there is no one. In fact, the weird thing is, Cher seems to have absolutely no musical taste or pop cultural taste at all. She yeah, that's a, yeah. Even even never, when yeah. Ty says, "Do you remember rolling the homies?" She gives that look of, hmm. what like she doesn't remember the song because she doesn't really kind of care about the song well that that note for me because that was part of the minute that we covered and i always felt that i agree with you Cher does not really seem to have a lot of musical taste but i think that to me that moment was more to show like when you're a teenager or anybody like and you have a crush on someone how all these little moments are very meaningful to you and everybody else like doesn't quite notice it so i think that was just more to hype up like ty's obsessiveness over ellen that is a thing that we've all done um but but yeah it's weird as well because obviously when rolling the homies plays when they're at the what is meant to be i believe it's like a pizza kitchen or something i can't remember the yeah yeah which apparently they vetoed the script so it is it's shot in something that looks like that um during that minute and ty starts banging her head on the table and rolling with the homies plays like that's that's before she tells Cher about the whole rolling with the homies thing that's obviously the whole you know you know how fussy i am about what i put my feet like speech so she doesn't even remember ty banging her head on the table to rolling with the homies like because it seems like she has no like she she complains about josh's taste in music but yeah she doesn't have her own taste in music you know i'm guessing she she's it. just very like top 40 but you know so whatever is you know popular she probably likes but she's not going to sit in her room and play a record or you know put a tape on or you know even when she's in the car with josh yeah. before they bring all the like food to the the lawyers doing the depositions she's got a tape in her hand and she's looking at it as though she's never seen a tape but like, as if she's as if she's like a 6 year old in the year 2016, as if she's like, what is this? But she's kind of looking at the artist, which we never actually, you never actually get a really good shot. But guessing that it's Josh, it's probably the Benz by Radiohead that she's holding. (laughs) Probably Pablo Honey, actually. But she's looking at it as if to say, this is terrible taste in music. But at the same time, in Cher's gigantic room, you never see like a rack of CDs or anything like that. She's got tons of clothes. She's got literally... Mm -hmm. No other kind of interests. Well, we do know. I am gonna. I am gonna correct you because I do not believe that Ty banks her head on the table because that was an, that was one of my minutes. Um, but Ty gets very like, like, like chest clenchy, and this is our song, like rolling with the homies. Um, but we do know that Cher is a fan of Hamlet and adaptations um, <laughs> yeah. because she remembers Mel Gibson. I guess that's it. Yeah, she she says the names of a few actors in the film, like Jason Priestley or yeah. like Mel Gibson. For some reason, I figured that when she makes a comment about uh, Mel Gibson playing Hamlet, it was something that she watched for school. Like, because yeah. yeah. that was, you know, I remember watching Shakespeare movies as like the teachers would bring it in, or maybe she did it on her own. There's not, and I, and I wonder if that was a specific choice by Heckerling to try not to date the movie. I think it probably was because she also invented the slang so that the mm-hmm. movie wouldn't date in the same way because she didn't want to use actual contemporary 90s slang <laughs> because she thought yeah. in two years' time no one's going to be saying these words. And so that's why you get the whole like Barney, Betty, Baldwin, Monet, like all that stuff is just to deliberately distance it a little bit from the 90s. So we have the Bukatos and everyone is fighting for it. Like you say, Miss Stoga. Mm-hmm. You know, Dion, uh, Ty, even Lucy is fighting. Uh, you know, she needs a way out of that Horowitz household, basically. <laughs> she's trying to, she's just trying to grab for it. Uh, most notably, Amy Heckling herself is um, in that scuffle. Um, yeah. On the kind she's of, the bridesmaid. Yeah, on the, on the left side of the screen, I think it is, as you look at it. Um, and as is Amber, I think this is the last time we get to see Amber. She's kind of fighting for for so it's basically all of the the female cast like i say i would have liked to have seen christian 
getting in there but you know i get i guess this is 1995 so the other thing that um i noticed and yes. you know i've been to plenty of weddings in my life i have never been to a wedding where every woman wore pink like various <laughs> shades of pink you know and especially there you know there's this one older woman i don't think it's amber i mean it could possibly seem like it might be her but she seems to be an older woman in a short pink dress and a very weird pink fuzzy hat with a white like uh flower on it yeah and she just kind of creeped me out but i think it was like <laughs> when i saw her while, while i was watching this that i noticed that every single woman is in pink now i there could be a theme um it would she could have a dress code through, yeah like you know yeah. if they mentioned the theme or something like that you know i've heard black and white weddings black and silver weddings um, I like that, you know, D kind of goes with a pink and bright green look, but <laughs> I, that was the thing that like really threw me off. I was like, why is every single woman in pink? Like it is, it's a little creepy. Like it's a little, yeah, I don't know. And then Cher's dress is so small on her that like when she grabs and jumps up, like you actively see like Alicia yeah, Silverstone pull down. her down. Yeah, she's doing um, awkward. She's doing what I believe they call the Picard maneuver, as she uh, as she stands <laughs> up just with the bottom of her dress rather than the the uh, edge of her her command shirt. Uh, yeah, yes. and of, I mean obviously you know um, Cher has to get the bouquet because. Yes. This is a film about Cher. <laughs> it's not a film about the creepy old woman with the, the blonde hair and the, the weird pink fuzzy hat. It's about Cher. So, you know, I think she actually gets fingers on it first when it lands as well. And then it bounces around a little bit. And then Amber falls to the ground. And then obviously, you know, Cher kind of pops back up with the uh, with the bouquet. Um, having been given the encouragement in the previous minute by Josh that there was money riding on her getting it. Which I loved. I loved that, like, like that her getting the bouquet was less about, like, okay, you need to get, you know, that she's going to get there because she's going to plan her wedding and blah, blah, blah. You know, even as we have before her with her as if I'm only 16. But I yeah. like that it was conspiratorial with the two of them <laughs> because I, I felt like that connected really well. And I was, um, you guys probably addressed this in the, the minute when they're having the discussion and, you know, and uh, Josh says, oh, you know, you're gorgeous. But I realized that at that point and through the rest of the movie, he picks up kind of an odd pseudo New Yorky accent. And <laughs> I, it's not in it anywhere else. I know he's not from, I believe Paul Red's not from New York. And it just becomes this, I was really thrown by that. And then it kind of comes up a little bit here with his, you know, conspiratorial like piece of it. And that, that was rewatching that going oh paul rudd this is a very very strange choice that you're making when you've made such <laughs> lovely choices before um i was gonna say and then after the toss we we finish the actual um you know body of the film about halfway through our minute with um is it one kiss or is it kind of like two like a kind of longish kiss and then a little small kiss is how, is how i see it because it's like they, they kind of kiss because... She, I, I mean, they kiss because she's got the bouquet, but they also just kiss because yeah. it's the end of the film. Um, and then they kind of stop and they both smile and then they kind of kiss a little bit more. Um, and yeah. Paul Rudd does, does this thing where he starts kind of like tousling one of Cher. Cher's got like these little curls in on the side and he starts like kind of playing with one of them. <laughs> so I, I'm not quite sure what that was about, but uh, yeah. Uh, I think that's just a standard rom-com. Like, okay, we're <laughs> kissing. Uh, I know it hap It tends to happen a lot in um, Parks and Recreation, ironically. like that, Not ironically, but uh, Paul Rudd, who was also on that show and is friends with Adam Scott. Like he does that a lot with uh, Leslie Nope when Ben White is kissing her. So I think it's more of a rom com move of the, oh, like this. <laughs> also, from a shooting perspective, it's a little bit more visually appealing to have them do one other thing instead of, we're just going to watch you kiss for 30 seconds now. Yeah. So, and it's cute. Like the credits start coming up. We start getting the, the single card credits. Obviously, we start with written and directed by Amy Heckling. Um, and then we get produced by Scott Rudin and Robert Lawrence. One thing that I wanted to go back to was that uh, I came across an interview with Twin Kaplan, who played this guy, and she said that they'd actually filmed two endings to oh, yes, the movie. Yeah. So they, they did two um, wedding scenes, one of which is the one that we saw, and the, um, the next 
part was that they did a nightmare scene from Cher's point of view. So it was her where she was having a dream slash nightmare in which uh, Josh and Miss Geist got married. So I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I kind of wish that we got to see both of them or if they put that. I have to track down the DVD. I think I do have it and see if um, that is like an extra somewhere because Miss Geist gets to make out with both Wallace Shawn and Paul Rudd. So <laughs> Every woman's Kaplan, dream is to make out with both of those guys. <laughs> you know what? Like, I'm, you know, I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say, yeah, because you could say that you made out with the guy from The Princess Bride, and you can say that you made out with pa- Paul Rudd. And I'm sure when you say the guy from The Princess Bride, everyone will go, oh, Carrie Elvis. You made out with Carrie Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> the Sicilian. The Sicilian from The Princess Bride. Yeah. You just don't uh, correct them. Or they're like, oh, Andre the Giant. Uh, <laughs> what is he like? It's like, oh, he's very dead. Uh, he's been dead for quite a while. Um, yes. You know, very, but his, very his, sad. his face is everywhere telling me to obey. We get the, the, the producer credits for Scott Rudin and Robert Lawrence. And the, the, the weird thing is, um, in terms of uh, like writing credits, if you have the word and between two names, it means that someone wrote a script and then they were fired and then somebody else came in and rewrote the script. So if you're a team, if you're two people who write a script, like, say, huh. the, the creators of... Um, uh, the O.J. Simpson series. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a pair of writers. They wrote Edward. They wrote um, a number of other things. I think they also did Big Eyes. They basically specialize in doing biopics. And <laughs> when they're credited, they have an ampersand between their names because they're a team. So oh. the fact that Scott Rudin and Robert Lawrence are credited here with an and suggests to me that Robert Lawrence was a producer attached to the film when it was known as I Was a Teenage Teenager or whatever the terrible title yeah. was. And then when Scott Rudin came aboard, he then just became the full on-set producer for it. That's, that's, that's what that would suggest to me. And the fact that they haven't, worked together before or after <laughs> suggests that they were just two producers who had an equal amount of work that was done so they both got a card together um i mean robert lawrence he he before this he i mean the same year he worked on die hard with a vengeance and then he did like down periscope um the year after and he was yeah. actually a producer on the tv series martin and then he produced um martin lawrence's like last two kind of like live projects so i think and he also was a producer on the tv series called partners that was the third version of a tv series called partners that was martin lawrence and kelsey Grammer, who played like two lawyers who had to work together um it was like 10 episodes it was one of those 10 90 deals but it didn't get the 90 it only got the 10 um oh, wow. you're looking very puzzled there amy at the, at the description of this tv show <laughs> i'm what i'm actually more puzzled by is i'm really curious about robert lawrence and martin lawrence yeah like like it, i don't I mean, are they bffs or kind of what's going on here or are they related i don't know i'm not sure i can't see i can't find a picture of of, of uh robert lawrence and there's nothing that suggests i mean the fact that he worked on die hard with a vengeance before he started working with Robin with Martin Lawrence suggests that he just kind of you know fell in with him um but yeah so um partners was only notable in the fact that uh you know it, it did 10 episodes but mostly it stole McKaylee Miller away from Heart of Dixie um oh I did not watch that uh, were you well, a fan of Heart of Dixie I love Heart of Dixie who wouldn't why wouldn't you love Hot Dixie? Well, you know what? I can't say I wasn't. I never watched it, but but oddly enough, the people that I know that watched it, not oddly enough, they loved it. So yeah. I, it's one of those TV shows I'm that had like warmer. a premise pilot, and then after like the first thirteen, it like drops the premise, and then for the back nine, it just turned into something different, and then from then on, the show just was a whole different thing. The thing it got compared to actually after the first season was uh, Gilmore Girls in the the tone of the show became about the town, kind of like oh, a Stars okay. Hollows type thing where they had lots of like crazy people. You had uh, Reginald Vell Johnson from 
die hard, oddly enough, playing like the towns like gossip, like who would just go around like asking people questions and stuff. It was it it was very, very odd. You had also, and this is probably my favourite bit of trivia, you had both vice presidents from the West Wing were on it, like both of the huh. actors who played the vice presidents on the West Wing. One played the father of um uh what's her face from the OC who was the lead actress. Um Rachel Bilson. Uh, okay. Gary Co- Gary Cole played her father, and then like her main rival in the town, like the rival doctor, was played by the guy who was um, in uh, Animal House. Um, <laughs> I'm struggling to find remember the actor's name, but yeah. So for me, it was like, oh, it's both of these guys from The West Wing and Gary Cole, who of course I loved in the TV show Midnight Caller, because who didn't love Midnight Caller? It's about a radio host who solves crimes. <laughs> <laughs> And Gary Cole is that radio host. Do you never see Midnight Caller? It was... I think I probably watched one episode of it, but I He was the kind of like talk radio host who would stand around in his studio staring out of the window whilst talking to the listeners. And the microphone was always super close to his mouth, so his voice was like always really deep. Uh, but I just I, I used to love Midnight Caller because it had like a really kind of like 80s opening theme if you can find on YouTube the opening theme to Midnight Caller because it's just like 20 saxophones and it's just like it's really 80s <laughs> like, and I say that as a saxophonist because I you know so I appreciate oh, is that what is that what they're called saxophonists yeah yeah that's what we're called I didn't know that which is funny because people are like saxophone player and I'm like no <laughs> that's not right <laughs> Have another try at that. Anyway, yeah, so Scott Rudin is, like, the important producer because he is the one who, you know, as he describes it himself, he kind of found the script for Clueless with a terrible title, kind of in the slush pile, and he was the one that, you know, hooked it with Amy Heckling, and, you know, he produced it. Scott Rudin, of course, like, he has... You know, he's produced so many, like, really good films. But for some reason, he started off in the 90s with the the run of films, which is, like, um, I mean, he had Flatliners, then he had Pacific Heights, then he had Regarding Henry, then he had Little Man Tate. Now, those four films are very kind of, like, 80s hangover, early 90s type films. Yeah. Like, they're all really kind of, like, high concept of, like, oh, what if people were dead and something happened? And, you know, oh, what if uh, a crazy guy who looks exactly like Michael Keaton moves into your extremely big yuppie house? And, oh, what if a yuppie is heartless and mean, but then he gets brain damage and he becomes (laughs) super nice to everyone? And, you know, and, oh, look at this tiny little genius kid who, you know, people pick on and all that kind of, like... Yeah, so like, but not, but the thing is, working with really big names like you know Joel Schumacher and J.J. Um, Abrams wrote um, regarding Henry under his real name Jeffrey. So you know, and you know, Little Man Tate was. Jodie I didn't Foster's... know. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that was see that was the first time he worked with Harrison Ford. The most recent of uh-huh. which, of course, was Force Awakens. Um, and Little Man Tate obviously was Jodie Foster's directorial yep. debut. So like, you know, he's worked with a lot of big names and stuff he's he done a couple of films with he did like the Adams Family films uh, Sister Act he seems to specialise in films that only have one sequel and then nobody bothers with them again <laughs> um, but I mean I like Adams Family Values because it's kind of it kind of subverts what you expect an Adams Family film to be in fact the Adams Family kind of fits with like the Brady Bunch of being like those kind of 90s films that took a 70s product but did yeah. it slightly ironically and with a little bit of kind of distance um which is obviously something I, that, that is not present in Clueless. There is no distance or irony in this film. It is, you know, it, it is exactly as it's meant to be. <laughs> you know, people might say sarcastic things, but it's a, it's a, it's a very real film. Um, oh yeah, this is this one's very earnest. Um, the other ones, yeah, like the Anne's family, uh, had a sardonicness to it. And I was listening to an interview with Scott Rudin before this that he did with NPR, which I thought was interesting because, as you said, he, you know, found it on the slush pile and the script had been attached to Fox for a long time. And I guess Heckerling's agent wanted Rudin to work with Heckerling on um, a new project. And she sent him, you know, I was a teenage teenager, like to show proof of, of her talents and blah, blah, blah. And he like, just loved the script and called Heckerling is like, why are we working on something different? Why aren't we producing this? And yeah. so that had a lot to do with like how it came out. And he was, 
it was interesting because he, he was talking about how every page was funny and he was really blown away by her use of language um, and how he, you know, like how she just kind of spun things. And I th- think that that probably informs a lot of like the projects that he chooses, you know, like does it have a really strong sense of itself? Um, you know, even I'm just looking up here too as well. Like he did South, you know, he was executive producer on the South Park movie. And, um, I mean, speaking of, of Aaron Sorkin, yeah, speaking of Aaron Sorkin, he also did, um, social network, um, which is a film, which is a film that I like, although I feel some people have soured on it in recent years because they're not a big fan of the whole Jesse Eisenberg thing anymore. (laughs) Um, but I think, I I think that's a great film. I haven't seen it since I saw it live, but I I thought it was fantastic when I saw it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And kind of almost like clueless as well with like a lot of back and forth between characters and stuff. So. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he was kind of spoilt when he had both, um, like, There Will Be Blood and No Country were both, like, when they were both nominated for um, Best Picture. And obviously, you know, the Academy rules are you can only you can only have a certain amount of producers go on stage to get the Best Picture Oscar. So he basically had two films that he could have gone on stage for that night. So, like, I don't, I don't recall where he sat that night, but I'm assuming he sat at a table that was kind of equidistant between both directors, just in case <laughs> he had to go out with the Coens or he had to go out with P.T. Anderson. So, but yeah, like, you know, also he's, you know, he's done, you know, he did like Fantastic Mr. Fox and yeah, he, he's done so many really good, like, stuff with a lot of directors. He did the, the, David Fincher, Girl with Dragon Tattoo, which I really like, but I think some people prefer the uh, the Swedish version. But yeah, um, and he was also a producer for the the TV series of Clueless. Um, but and he was there like all the way to the end. Though I have a feeling, much like the fact that I think Twink Kaplan got a credit for being a producer all the way to the end as well. I think it was just kind of like a courtesy thing because he was part of the kind of the source material well that i mean i was gonna say that's a big part of it i think if you executive produce a movie and then there becomes a tv show i mean that's why if you watch buffy all the way through the kuzai's or i don't know how you pronounce it uh, k-u-z-a-i lefran um and her husband they are listed as executive producers because they executive produced the movie and even though they had absolutely nothing to do with the the (laughs) series yeah uh, most recently, um, Scott Rudin produced um, Zoolander 2 and Steve Jobs and Aloha. So he's had a slight downturn in the last year. Though he did yeah. also do he did also do Ex Machina um, and Rosewater, and and he's a producer on Silicon Valley as well. So, uh, but again, I think yeah. Silicon Valley I, he's not really a TV producer. So I think that's just the fact that he brought uh, who's the guy who created it? Who did Beavers and Butthead? Um, Mike Judge. Yeah, Mike I think Judge it's just. This? Yeah, I think it's just because he brought Mike Judge to HBO. Okay. I think that's why he gets he gets the the credit. Yeah, so you know Scott Rudin, one of those kind of like Uber producers who just seems to like have his name on everything. And I think these days he says you know like it says a Scott Rudin production at some point <laughs> before the yeah. credits. You know, um, he's he's definitely on the credit block. Uh, Bill Pope is the director of photography. I spoke a lot about Bill Pope where, when I was last a host with the guys from the Star Wars Minute. So I'm not going to talk too much about it. But there are some beautiful shots that uh, Bill Pope puts together. But a lot of this was uh, location stuff. You know, Mel's house is a location. So, mm-hmm. you know, he he would just kind of... I mean, there's, there's kind of not a great deal you can kind of do like on locations like that. You know, you can kind of shoot them well but this film's mostly people talking so not really that much interest um i did want um yes oh i just noticed too that he was a director of photography on the freaks and geeks pilot which you might have mentioned when you did yeah. your minute but i am a great big fan of freaks and geeks so that just warms my heart he's also um sam raimi's like resident dp so mm. he's done a lot of stuff with sam raimi uh then we get on to stephen jordan who is the production designer who is gen- who, whose card is teal on yellow, which is just a, a really kind of bright combination. These these credits really don't let you sleep. Um, now, interestingly, he had worked... He'd done the production design on the Brady Bunch movie this year, the same year that Clueless came out as well. Um, and he also did A Night at the Roxbury and Loser. And so I think he's actually... Um, and he also did Vamps, I think. 
So I and most recently he's done Brain Dead, which is currently on CBS as we record this episode uh, from yeah. the crea- from the creators of The Good Wife, um, The Kings. Yeah, and uh, he, I mean, bizarrely enough, he did uh, Law and Order Trial by Jury, but not any other Law and Order. So I'm, I'm not sure why he he did that particular one. Um, but yeah, he also did uh, Good Burger and Basketball, um, and I love Basketball. If there were ever a Basketball minute by minute podcast. I would definitely be doing that because <laughs> I've watched that film. Uh, I'm not. I'm not kidding. Probably six, seven hundred times. There was a point where really? I would just put that DVD on to fall asleep to, and so you know, for for nights in a row, I would just fall asleep. And it's one of those DVDs that auto plays. So when it finishes, it'll go into the menu for about thirty seconds, and then it will just start playing the film again. So I would just wake up and you know, at four in the morning, and it'd be in the middle of basketball, <laughs> and then I'd go back to sleep. Um, I feel like I suddenly like learned an important truth about you, Darren, <laughs> that I do not know how to process. Um, I think it's going to take me a little while. It's going to take me a little while to like work through this because that is, I mean, I, I have my things that I have watched a lot, uh, especially graduating from college. I particularly watch Mallrats a lot um, in a very similar way, but not basketball. And Wow. <laughs> Wow. I um, think it, the, the funny thing about basketball is, like, there's a point with um, the creators of South Park, bringing it back to Scott Rudin producing Bigger, Longer, and Kurt, um, where the stuff they kind of did before, like, say, season 10, in fact, before, two, before September 11th, before mm-hmm. September 11th hit, South Park stuff was kind of stupid. And that goes the same for, like, Orgasmo and basketball and... You know, the stuff that they did before September 11th was mostly really dumb stuff. And then after September 11th, like, Trey Parker and Matt Stone seem to be like, I think we should be doing something a bit more kind of, like, satirical, a bit more cutting. So, you know, I mean... I could do that. I think I like basketball because it was directed by one of the guys who did Airplane. (laughs) And I can never remember which one. Um... Uh, David Zucker. It was directed by David Zucker and it was written by oh, okay. Robert Locash, who was also his writer on um, on the Naked Gun films. Um, and I, I have a horrible feeling that Zucker is the one who's gone like a little bit right wing mm, in recent years. You might be right. Out of Zaz, I can't I can't remember wh- which of those three is the one who does all the kind of like crazy like right wing film stuff. Um, but I have a feeling it might be him. I do have to say, though, looking looking through uh, Jordan's uh, career, especially his early stuff, it's literally like one movie I love after another, like PCU and, um, as we said, the Brady Bunch movie. And it's when you, you mentioned that, like Brady Bunch movie and Clueless have a very similar look to them with very bright colors, very yeah. simple, like, and obvious, like, set pieces in kind of a 70s way. Then he also did Never Been Kissed. Yes, um, everyone loves is, that film. Great film. Yes, you you know it's like you it's the law. You know you. I mean the creepiness. And, well, and yeah, I was gonna say the thing is they call it out though when he says I'll see you around, Mrs. Robinson. So it's not like it's not like they don't know what they're doing. Yes, um, exactly. And I feel like exactly. Drew Barrymore could pass for a high schooler even now because she is timeless. Um, yes, but yeah, that's that that's that's in fact that's one of those films where like the lead. Like the main story is kind of really not that interesting, but all the kind of wacky characters around it are a little bit more interesting. So all the stuff that's yes. going on with is it John C. Riley and um, Superstar? I can't remember the name of the actress now off of SNL. Uh, Molly Shannon. Yeah, so they're Molly kind of like, they've got like a weird like side romance thing going on, and like that kind of stuff is like really funny. Uh, and like all the stuff with um, you know what, what is the word they keep trying to make happen in that Betch. film? Not fetch. No, that's that's Mean Girls. Darren, that's Mean Betch. Girls. <laughs> no, you're right. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. It's Rufus. Mean Girls. What the hell is it? It's Rufus. Is the thing that they keep saying. They keep they keep going. Oh, that's very Rufus. Uh, Rufus. I think you're yeah. right. It's Rufus. <laughs> but anyway. I'm really embarrassed. I'm very. I'm just really unsettled. You know what? I'm going to blame it on you and all this like talk about sleeping to basketball. Like, like I thought I knew you, Darren. I thought I knew you, and now I don't. And now, I, like everything in my life is discombobulated. 
But I think like there's a lot of very interesting like side stories going on in that film. And you've got, you know, Gary Marshall and Octavia Spencer and like just just so many like people who are, are doing like really kind of funny stuff. Um not that, you know, Drew Barrymore and Michael Varton aren't doing something interesting, but you know, Michael Varton did... is fairly bland in that film, I feel. Um, I I agree. And I think it's yeah. like um every single character gets to just like the side characters. Um, they even have like kind of well-rounded stories, which you very rarely see in, you know, both movies of the time, but just movies in general. Um, even her brother, like, uh, was it, um, David Arquette? Yeah. Who has his like moment of reckoning when he realizes that this like 16 year old girl wants to have sex with him. And he's like, okay, no, like this is, this is the point where I realize I've become a jerk. Like, and I have got to like yeah. get my together. Isn't she, um, isn't she like, together. Uh, isn't she like a gymnast or something? And yes, yeah. yes. That's the yeah, point is like, she gets... is showing him how flexible <laughs> she can be. Like when they finally have sexy times. And I think, I don't know if it's, that's the point where he's like, I have got to walk away or if it's close to that. Yeah. He kind of um, like lets her down easy. But yeah, that is, um, but, uh, you know, Stephen J. Jordan, as he is sometimes credited, uh, reunited with Amy Heckling on Loser. Um, mm-hmm. And he did the 2009 remake of The Stepfather, which is a really weird um, thing. But I wanted to talk about the fact that he did uh, the first season of Enlightened, uh, you know, which is a show that I, I really mm-hmm. enjoy. Even though I think I pretty much hate the lead character of Enlightened. Um, because... I think she was just terrible, but I mean, I have a feeling that was by design. I think Mike White and um, uh, Laura Dern kind of deliberately made her character a little bit kind of hateable. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, some work. I mean, Enlightened was a was a really good show, um, but it's kind of yeah. His most recent stuff, like I say, is Brain Dead. Um, but I'm not sure what like, kind of. Obviously, the production design on Clueless, I think just a lot of it is, this is a kind of cartoony, bright universe. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, obviously you talked about, like, all the dresses, all the bridesmaids' dresses and everything being, like, pink. You know, that goes the same for the costume designer, whom I will discuss in the next minute, which is, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of kind of coordination between all these different departments to make this film as bright as is humanly possible. Um, yeah, and aside from obviously, even even the themes of it are fairly bright. When even though occasionally it does get dark, like when you know uh, muggers turn up out of nowhere and uh, point a gun at the head of the lead character. I wonder, you know, I think maybe that's why the movie also stands out for coming out, you know, in nineteen ninety five, right? Ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, ninety five. When we were really still in the world of grunge. You know, it was like kind of grunge and dark and flannel, uh, uh, flat, uh, ah, flat flannels. You know, I mean, like you compare, I mean, if you think about it, like this, you know, it also came in out in 95 with my so-called life. Yeah. Um, anyway, we move on to the film editor who has the same name as my mom, which is Deborah. And oh. she, she has a surname, which is Chieti or Chiet. I don't know how you would say that. Or, I mean, it could be something else. Uh, but here's the really interesting thing about Deborah Chiet or Chietti or however you want to say it. Um, she has worked a lot with um, Amy Heckling and not oh, yeah. much else. Uh, she was the editor for the uh, Fast Times TV show. Um, she was uh, she was an assistant film editor on the actual film uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, and she was also obviously the editor on Clueless, but also Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking too which I, I think were hmm. both written by Amy Heckling. And then she was also the editor for Never Been Kissed. Um, so that is something that people That's will hear weird. also in tomorrow's episode, where there's a lot of people who worked behind the scenes on a number of different projects together. Uh, and then Loser. And then after that, um, you know, the next kind of high-profile film is The House Bunny, uh, which, you know, features the combination of Emma Stone and Kat Dennings pretending to be yes. uh, college age and uh, then vamps with uh, amy heckling once more and then one of the segments from movie 43 <laughs> so that is a that, that is, is a, a mixed career i would say that is a very random career yeah and she she also worked on a, a couple of episodes of the clueless tv series the clueless tv series you know the pilot um was 
written and directed by Amy Heckling. Amy Heckling was producer for the first year. She had Twink Kaplan and um, uh, what's his face from The Princess Bride. Um, like they came back, you know. There's, there's like a number. There's a number of people who came back aside from like the main characters that you like in this film, <laughs> such as yeah. like Josh. Um, although Paul Rudd does make a guest appearance on one of the episodes of, as does um, uh, Travis and Brittany Murphy. Um, hmm. I say Travis rather than the actor's name, um, but yeah. So they, they make they don't appear as their characters, but they do make guest appearances. Um, and obviously Dan Hedaya wasn't on the TV show. Yeah, um, I'm trying to figure out who the director for the uh, the section that, that was edited by um, this person was. I have a I'm, I'm, I have a feeling off the top of my head it might be Elizabeth Banks. Yeah, it was. She edited Elizabeth Banks' segment of Movie 43. Wow. Yeah, that's like her most recent credit. Um, yeah, I'm trying to look and see if I can find anything that she has done. Um, and yeah. it has not, nothing's been coming up. I mean, she did some, the, the thing is, obviously, if an editor is really good, then you won't spot them. You know, like a really good editor puts stuff together so that you just watch it and you enjoy yeah. it. And you don't think, oh, this is really well edited. But I think uh, we certainly, I, I had the minutes where uh, Cher realized that she loved Josh. And when she says the, I'm majorly crazy in love, but crazy, I think she says, in love with Josh. As she says that, it cuts between stuff from earlier in the film where Paul Rudd and um, Alicia Silverstone are like poking each other. <laughs> which is like a, a kind of weird choice. But yeah, which I spoke about on the episode, which is like, if you see those little moments throughout the film, you would think... Well, that's odd. Why is Paul Rudd poking Alicia Silverstone in the, in the side of her belly? But when they're cut together later on, you're like, oh, they yeah. were like playful moments. And I think there's some of that as well with the kind of as as Cher is walking around and she's saying stuff about Josh and she's saying, oh, you know, like he's a slug. He just hangs around the house. And, and as she's gradually changing to the point where she realizes she's in love, each of it is cut with like really good like shots of Paul Rudd, basically, um, including one where he's just kind of like smiling directly at the camera. And it's just like, oh, right. So, you know, so Deborah Chiat or Chiati or however we're saying that name, she did know, a really Chia, good job. I was like, I'm, I'm trying uh, yeah. to scroll through and try to find like any other <laughs> update. And the only most more recent thing I can find of her is that she went to the, uh, the clueless reunion that they had yes. in 2013. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Chate, Chietti, Chietti. <laughs> However, There's so many different options. Yes. Yeah. Um, then we get a teal card with purple writing, which says co-producers Barry Berg and Adam Schroeder. Now, I think one of those is an AD, and the other is the UPM. So um, Barry Berg gets a second credit tomorrow. So I'll talk about Barry Berg tomorrow. Um, and then we finish our minute with associate producer Twink Kaplan. Um, who is getting a credit before any of the cast. <laughs> um, so, which of course comes from the fact that um, t- th- while on set, Twink Kaplan uh, handled rewrites for Amy Heckling. She was just like, you know, she was her friend and she was just like on set as uh, a writer. But due to rules on how the WGA give out credits, um, if she wanted to get a co-writing credit, she would have had to go through an arbitration process. And because she's friends with Amy Heckling, she didn't want to have to kind of force that process and yeah. kind of force an arbitration to give her a credit. So, uh, you know, they simply said, okay, you're an associate producer, uh, which is one of those many titles, which in Hollywood is almost meaningless. <laughs> uh, uh, pretty much. But I think like, you know, she seems in the interviews I've read of her, like she seems to be a kind of a chipper, delightful person. And um, I mean, obviously when the movie came out, nobody had any idea of how big it was going to get. Yeah. Um, but with the friendship that she had with Heckerling and anything else, you know, now that she was kind of connected to Paramount, I'm sure it was a place where, well, you know, even if, you don't get writer credit on here. Like what, you know, your goodwill I'm sure would have taken her into some other projects. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say like not forcing the arbitration is probably something that the studio would have been happy with. Obviously Amy Heckling would have been happy with because it allows Amy Heckling to keep the single 
written and directed credit. If there'd been an arbitration, it would have required a second card, and obviously that just becomes a whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and the thing is, uh, I mean, uh, people have discussed Twink Kaplan a little bit throughout the film, but I feel in detail it needs to be noted that she was born on Christmas Day. Um, apparently, Twink Kaplan, in uh, a few things, has been credited as Theodora Louise. Oh, oh, well, there you so, go. But, but the article that I came across, which is NNDB, I don't know what that is. Um, oh, that's the notable name database. Oh, okay. And it says a uh, few details about her personal life, but Kaplan occasionally received film credit as Theodora Louise, perhaps a clue to her birth name. Yeah. So, uh, again, this is not by any means solid information. You know, like, we are not going, like, full out. Um, I was just going to ask... As we've pretty much covered everything in this minute. So, I mean, when did you see Clueless? Did you see it at the cinema? I I can't remember. I do not remember. I know that, um, I might have mentioned this, but um, 1995, the summer of 1995 is an interesting blank in pop culture for me. Oh, because you were out of the country. I was out of the country. I was uh, living in a town about an hour north of Moscow for a couple of months. Uh, I was there all of June and July. And came back in August, which I think is when the movie came out, right? I think it, was it came out twenty first, twenty first July, nineteen ninety five. Okay, so, so it is quite possible I saw it in the theater, but I don't remember. Yeah, um, I, I might have rented it. Like, so I, I, it's a thing that I, I don't know. It's been in my life like for a very long time. But yeah, I uh, also have a big block of knowledge missing in regard to the O.J. Simpson trial that everybody <laughs> remembers because that was also going on that summer. Um, yeah. So, and if there's anything that's like a huge moment that a lot of people knew about, I will, and I have, I just can't grasp it. I will look it up and it usually has happened in June or July of 1995. <laughs> so. And um, I can't remember if you said you've seen other Alicia Silverstone films. Um, I think we talked, I have not really seen her films, but... I think Larissa and I talked about uh, Mismatch, maybe. I've seen, I remember watching Mismatch. That was really super cute and charming. I um, have, um, I think, 11 episodes of Mismatch on DVD-R. Do uh, you? That I, recorded, that I recorded off TV many years ago. I don't know if my current DVD player will play those DVD-Rs. But yeah, so I watched Mismatch. I can't remember who they, did they bring in Charisma Carpenter? Like, there was someone who, like about halfway through they brought in like a rival who was doing the same who was also a lawyer who was a matchmaker which i love well, that she premise. she wasn't the lawyer her father was a lawyer yeah she worked for him though was... i thought she was like a paralegal oh she did she, she, did, she right. did she did like lawyery stuff because she was always yeah. in the office with whomever played her father which escapes me at this particular point ryan ryan o'neill i believe played her father oh, okay. and he was a divorce lawyer yeah. So that that's, and I remembered hey, that is the, that's a premise pilot right there. Exactly, a matchmaker that works for a divorce lawyer. Exactly, it's so it's completely perfect. And I remember they brought in Nathan Fillion because like that was around the time Firefly went out. And if you look through the cast, I mean, like John Cho is in it. There is a ton of really interesting people. So I, I may have to. Uh, Sneak over across the pond and steal your DVDR <laughs> and try to rewatch this, or maybe see if I can find them on YouTube. Uh, so, who did you say was your favorite character in the film out of everyone? Assuming, of Gosh. course, that Cher is your first, because Cher is everyone's favorite character. No, <laughs> I think like Josh. I think that the, the first time we talked about it, I said Josh because he was around my age. Yeah. And so I could kind of like, in an odd way, he was my way in a little bit more. Plus, he's adorable. And then um, the second time uh, Larissa and I talked about it, we kind of decided the D. Because, like, D is just a good friend, you know? And, like, she's straightforward. And, you know, we're, we're ignoring Stacey Dash, but, like, like D is just. <laughs> An awesome person um, who wants to do the best for, you know, people for the most part. And, yeah, I just, you know, I I remember we had this really interesting conversation about it. Because, like, whereas Cher does things, especially in the first half of the movie, she does things to help people, but she still kind of does it out of a selfish 
place and she lies about it. Like, yeah. you know, she'll make things up. <laughs> Dee never really lies. Like, Dee yeah. just is really straightforward. And I love, like, the relationship she has with Murray in this way of, I'm not putting up with this. Um, oh, you think you're going to, like, go shave your head? I'm calling your mother. Like, you know that she has a good relationship with a bunch of different people. Um, by the way that she talks to people and like just even the offhanded references that she makes, there's just something about her when she's on screen. Like she's just really fun and you know that it's going to be like, like I, I always kind of like Ty, but Ty is, you know, your virgin that can't drive. Like in that moment, like it is, she's so going for the jugular to hurt that it, I remember from the first moment I saw the movie, it really colored my view of Ty. She also sarcastically then goes, I'm Audi. Like as yeah. she, as she leaves, so she's like, uh, okay. <laughs> it's like, and obviously you're a fan of one's very specific teen movie, Grease 2. Grease 2. I am a big fan of Grease 2. And, um, yes, I have seen that. I, I, I somehow managed to bring Grease 2 up, like, in every conversation I ever end up having <laughs> about teen movies. Um, I've seen that a lot. And my other, I mean, I'm also a big John Hughes genre fan. I'm a big fan of Some Kind of Wonderful. Yeah. Huge, huge fan of Some Kind of Wonderful. And then, um... I mean, that's my favorite my... of those. I mean, um, like, I mean, War Games doesn't count because it's not really John Hughes. Uh, yeah. But, like, I think War Games is the best, like, Ali Sheedy performance um, out of all mm-hmm. her films of kind of that era before she turns into Stephanie in um, Short Circuit. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much you call War Games a teen movie. I guess, you know, Matthew Broderick was an actual teen, so. I guess te- technically it is because, yeah. it's, you know, it's like a darker one where he's going through a lot of stuff. I mean, I feel like there's probably been some like River Phoenix movies that are like technically teen movies. Like they may not yeah. be like Poppy genre teen movies, but they are like coming of age films, which yeah. is another way, you know, it's like the building, uh, buildings, Roman thing. But, um, I mean, I like some kind of wonderful cause it's like a guy picking between two ridiculously beautiful girls. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, I would like to be in that particular situation where I have to choose between either a beautiful girl or a beautiful girl. It's, I mean, it's not really a hard choice. Oh no. Oh, oh, completely not. And I am a sucker, sucker, sucker for the, um, best friends into relationship like yeah. trope. So, and I really think that this one kicked it off like hardcore when I was like 13. I I have the novelization of some kind of wonderful. <laughs> oh, and I wanted to be Watts. Like I was just talking to a friend of mine. It's like, like, and we both, we didn't know each other at that age, but you know, we both so desperately wanted to be Watts, you know, and, yeah. and kind of connected into her world of kind of a androgynous, butchy, but like really super awesome chick that like was still seen as a super awesome chick. Um, and I still go back to like that movie of, um, there's different lines of it, but the, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather you not see me and think of things of me than see me all the time and hate me. And like, oh, like that just like, just devastates my little heart of, of trying to figure all of those things out at that age. But, um, I like the, the, the kind of detention scene with Elias Kataeus, Kataeus, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Where um, he's like carving into the desk and he shows it to uh, Eric Stoltz and Eric Stoltz is like scribbling in like a notebook and he like shows it to him and they both kind of just like nod and they're like, yeah, that's, that's good. That is. <laughs> well, well, also, if I recall correctly, because again, I'm obsessive about things. Um, so he, I believe Eric Stoltz holds up a picture and it's a girl. It might be Amanda. Yeah. Um, and then Elias Cotillas holds up what his girlfriend would look like without skin. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I remember that because <laughs> it's in the novelization or if it's in the actual movie. Movie, yeah but that is a thing oh and let's just be honest like that is one of the best kissing scenes um in the garage yeah. where watt says you know like she's gonna show him how to kiss like she watches a lot of tv <laughs> and because like you know is it um amanda jones is no amateur like she's not gonna be swept away <laughs> by like your amateur lips or whatever the whole thing is and it ever like everything like that is like swoon worthy and dream worthy like it is just everything that you want in a kiss especially as a teenager but i think forever like you know that anticipation and that moment and like 
and the other person seeing you kind of finally. And yeah. Thanks very much for joining me, Amy, for this, uh, the first credits minute. Not a full credits minute, just a kind of half a credits minute because we only get 30 seconds of credits. Um, but we got kissing. We got yeah. kissing. Yeah, oh, we got a lot of kissing. Credits. Yeah, kissing and credits. That's probably what I'll call this episode when I come to put <laughs> a title. It's rare that I come up with the title while the episode's going on. Um, but also, thanks for being a host on the, uh, you know, on the 10 episodes that you were the host for. They, oh, I had such a fantastic time. Thank you for letting me be a host. And I got to discuss two of my super, super f- favorite blocks of um, this movie. Get to what it's like to be a teenage girl that has a crush and kind of getting over that crush. And then also... Um, share laying the smackdown on heather and what i'd forgotten to is like what an amazing like face and uh charmedness that uh paul rudd gets when he is just like i'm really smitten with this girl so <laughs> so do you have anything that you want to plug um as for right now uh probably the best way to find me is uh at twitter is amy pop a-m-y-p-o-p or my personal website which has all the different places to find me and has a lot of information about the Joss Whedon biography I wrote that came out in 2014. And that's at the Amy Pascal, T H E A M Y P A S C A L E dot com. And you have a podcast as well. Uh, I do have one that is going to be coming out at some point in the future uh, about television. So I don't have a launch date yet. Once I do that, I will uh, put all of that information out. Uh, that is the end of Minute 93. I'll be back tomorrow for Minute 94. And for the rest of the week, covering the credits, which are just names scrolling up the screen uh, <laughs> while the song plays. Um, actually, I, we didn't cover the song today, but I think that's because it started last week, so we don't need to get into that. Otherwise, uh, goodbye. Fairly well.